programming. Visit ChooseBooster.com for details on Booster's school fundraising events, technology, and customized spirit gear. Booster can help your Catholic school meet and exceed its fundraising goals. Learn more today. Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host, and today we are continuing our six-part series based on the presentation from 2005 made by Archbishop Michael Miller, then the Secretary of the Congregation of Catholic Education. It's called The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools. And in this series, we are focusing on the five essential marks of Catholic education, as outlined in the document, and hitchhiking on the four ecclesiastical marks of the church from the creed, Archbishop Miller identified five scholastic marks that make a school essentially Catholic, and they are inspired by a supernatural vision founded on a Christian anthropology, animated by communion and community, imbued by a Catholic worldview, and sustained by the witness of teaching. And for those who would be interested in obtaining a copy of this document, we have a special edition of it available on our website at diaschools.org. Now today, we're going to be discussing the fifth and final essential mark, sustained by the witness of teaching. And to help us explore this very important topic, I'm joined by Mr. Frank Hanna, the CEO of Hanna Capital in Atlanta, Georgia. He invests as a merchant banker in technology and financial services and has started and sold a number of businesses over the last 31 years. And prior to going into the investment business, he was a corporate attorney and in fact was featured in the PBS documentary, The Call of the Entrepreneur. He has been involved in education for the past 40 years and I believe about 35 years initially and specifically also targeting Catholic education. He's been instrumental in the foundation of 13 new educational institutions from preschool through post-secondary. And he also served as a chair or as the chair rather for uh, the Commission on Education Excellence under President George W. Bush. He's been a frequent speaker and an author of two best-selling books, What Your Money Means and A Graduate's Guide to Life. Frank is the founder of the Solidarity Association, and I think we're going to find out later the place that the Solidarity Association played in this wonderful document that we're highlighting. 
And of most significance, the Solidarity Association uh, also serves as the trustee for the Mater Verbi Hanna Papyrus Trust, which safeguards in the Vatican Apostolic Library the oldest copy of the Gospel of Luke and the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer in the world. Currently, he serves on and advises the boards of numerous nonprofit organizations, both within the Catholic Church and in the secular world, and that includes EWTN, the Acton Institute, and the American Enterprise Institute. In recognition for his charitable efforts, Frank received the William B. Simon Prize for Philanthropic Leadership and the David R. Jones Award for Philanthropic Leadership. He is also a Knight of Malta of the Holy Sepulchre and was named a Knight of the Grand Cross of the Order of St. Gregory by Pope Benedict XVI. Frank, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Father. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And thank you for opening us with a prayer today. Oh, it's our joy. Would you begin by just kind of telling us a little bit about your background and your upbringing? Sure. Uh, I, I live in Atlanta. I've, I've lived here pretty much all my life. I went about 60 miles away to go to college and law school. But um, and, and I was fortunate. I had parents who practiced the faith and grandparents who did. So it's some wonderful examples. Um, when I was in college, though, I thought, you know, you need to you need to own this yourself. I think I think all of us uh, for those who aren't raised Catholic and become Catholic, they they have more of this process. They they come into it. For those of who are uh, of us who are born into it, that's a wonderful gift. But at some point, I think we have to say, okay, that's fine. I was born into this, but do I do I truly accept this and say this is what I believe? This is how I want to live. Um, this is a religion that I want to be a part of to guide my life. Uh, and, and I, and I, you know, when I was in college, I read, I read a lot of different religions and a lot of different sources and ended up concluding uh, that the truth as it was explained by the Catholic mm -hmm. faith and by history um, seemed to tie together better than just about any other philosophy or or belief system that I had come across. And uh, I sort of, um, hopefully I'm still trying to go deeper into that conclusion that I reached when I was back in college. But I, I was one of those types who, uh, and I love to see in young people today an urge to, to uh, it, it almost sounds like the cliche, but to to make the world a better place. But that really is right. why God put us here, right? To to love him and to love one another. Um, and in in the earlier times, I was interested in in politics. How can politics do that? And politics can make things better. Um, how can business do that? But but I got intrigued with education because um, for the same reason, so many are interested in education. It's the it's it's the formation of human beings. Um, it's the calling out of, of of human beings to to what they're intended to be. And and the entire topic just fascinated me. So that's why you mentioned earlier, I've been interested in it for 40 years. 40 years ago, I was still an undergrad uh, uh, in college, but I started thinking, this this is intriguing to me. I want to be involved in education. I didn't know I'd be involved for this long mm -hmm. or to this in this depth, uh, but uh, I'm glad a little spark went off back then. And so how did you basically begin to express that uh, interest in education later in terms of helping to found new schools and and kind of begin to 
move into more of a proactive world? You know, for for me, uh, I, I don't know that I could say this is a prescription for others, uh, but for me, I've found in my life when I feel like I'm called to something, um, I try to pray about it and ask God to um, to strengthen my senses, my antenna, mm-hmm. for what he might put in my path regarding that. And so uh, I, I did actually, while I was in law school, uh, I did a lot of, I, I have a business major, so I did a lot of studying about how one might start actually a chain of private schools. And I was working on this when I was 23 years old and spreadsheets. And I did, I actually saved up my money to do some cons- cons- customer surveys about parents and what kind of schools they would want, that sort of thing. Uh, but I realized it was a task way beyond my ability at that point. Uh, fast forward a few years, uh, but not too many. I happened to be talking with my pastor at the parish I was now, it had come back to in Atlanta. And he wanted to start a new Catholic school there uh, because here in Atlanta, we don't have the the number and the breadth of Catholic schools that so many other cities in the country have. He wanted to start one. He said, would you be interested? And so, um, like I said, you pray to God. And then all of a sudden, if your heart is open, I think for most of us, if that's something that God is calling us to, you'll find things in your path. And uh, so back around 1994, I actually got involved in two new Catholic schools here in Atlanta that just kind of came in my path, Mm -hmm. Uh, one of which that my pastor and I and my brother and one other man uh, were involved in starting. Uh, My daughter and my brother's kids went through their entire career, and it's it's been beautiful to see now that's that school is now almost 30 years old. And uh, uh, it's it's wonderful to see the fruit that's come from it. So, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. If you're open to what God puts in your path, it does sometimes take patience. Um, uh, I have a fairly type A personality. So my natural tendency is to go make it happen. And there are times when we have to go make things happen. But it's interesting if we're open and we we're really prayerfully uh, looking f- for the signs from God. Uh, how we'll find ourselves put into opportunities that may not be exactly what we envisioned, uh, but but are but are sort of where He wants to lead us. And one one of the other involvements that uh, we covered was the Solidarity Association, and we'll get to that in its relationship to Archbishop Miller, but. Uh, I'd love to know a little bit about uh, its genesis and also about the uh, Hannah Papyrus. And now I've been a, a Bible teacher and preacher for over 40 some years. And uh, so I'm always intrigued when I hear about uh, manuscripts uh, that have been preserved. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Just real briefly about the Solidarity Association. Um our, our very first, it's an association of, of lay faithful, which is actually a canonical body within the church. Um, and, and I started it with, uh, with Archbishop Donahue, who was our Archbishop back when we, when we first got going. And we originally started to start a mission village. We called it the Solidarity Mission Village. And within the Solidarity, this was in a very poor uh, his, uh, area of Hispanic immigration, um, b- very poor area. And so we started, we bought an old 
shopping center and kicked out the massage parlor and the drug dealers and and, and the crime that was going on around there. And we created sort of a, a, a playground, a village of, of atmosphere. But but we also built the solidarity school uh, for, for the children, uh, K through five. So that was the first project of the Solidarity Association. As we got going, we got involved in a number of other projects, one of which we're going to talk about in a few minutes with regard to, to the book that we'll be discussing today. Um, the, the papyrus, it's it's actually a wonderful story, and I'll, I'll just give you a thumbnail of it because uh, I can talk to you. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, but long story short, I, it kind of came out of the blue. I was contacted by a priest working on behalf of the Vatican uh, because um, the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer, the oldest copy of Luke and the Gospels of Luke and John combined was found in the 50s in in, in uh, Egypt. Right. And it was in a it was in a library in Switzerland. And uh the library was needing to raise funds for their for their operations and they were going to put this up for auction. But before it went to auction, Christie contacted the Vatican and said, we'll give you a chance if you can go raise the money for it. Um, Pope Benedict was incredibly interested in this. First of all, he's a scholar. Some people don't know Pope Benedict before he became Pope, he actually asked to retire because he wanted to go be the librarian of the of the Vatican Library. That's right. what he loved. He loved books and scholarship. And um, but this thing's in ancient Greek. And and besides the fact that it's fascinating when things are old, in fact, I just saw in the Wall Street Journal today the oldest Hebrew Bible. Uh, complete Hebrew Bible or a very old thousand year old Hebrew Bible was just sold at auction. Um, and it's, it's in the newspapers today as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one, <clears throat> this one is 1800 years old. It dates anywhere from 175 to 225. And I'll, I'll leave you with this uh, final little tidbit about, okay, it's old. That's great. Why is it so important? The oldest complete Bibles that we have, that Christianity has. There are two of them. One is called the Codex Sinaiticus in the British Museum. The others know, yeah, I know you know this, but the, the others know as the Codex Vaticanus, which is in the Vatican Library. Those volumes date to about 325 AD. Now, those who want to challenge our faith by saying, well, you know, the oldest Bible you have is 325. Christ died almost 300 years prior to that. How can you be sure that these incredible stories, incredible. They're not incredible to us. We believe them. But these incredible stories are truthful when the oldest Bible you have dates to that point. So when this manuscript came out that predates the Codex Vaticanus anywhere from 100 to 150 years, the question is, will it match? If it doesn't match, well, then there's some there's some question about were, were people really being faithful to copying this mm -hmm. sacred scripture. If it does match, that means in very primitive societies without a lot of instruments, they were being very careful about transcribing what the first people who wrote the, the, the gospels in into what became our Bible in 325. And sure enough, and, and there, it's actually a very famous cardinal uh, did his doctoral thesis on this, Cardinal Martini uh, from Milan, who died a mm -hmm. few years ago. Right. He was actually going into the conclave after John Paul II. There was some debate, is it going to be Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, or Cardinal Martini? And it was Ratzinger. But Martini was a very well-respected biblical scholar. He did his doctoral thesis on this, and sure enough, they match. And, and now, by the way, there are a few words here or there, okay? But but 98% of it, 90, 98, 99, probably 99% of it, 
matches up just right after 100 to 150 years. So Pope Benedict was so interested because uh, he understood in terms of authentication of the Bible that we all use that's on our bookshelves, the gates back to Codex Vaticanus, uh, this papyrus predates it and helps authenticate the, the 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 scriptures upon which our faith is based. Scripture and tradition, but you know, helps authenticate that. So that was we just had a we, it was a blessing for us to be involved with it, um, and uh, uh, it's 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 one of the most um, one of the most joyful things I've ever ha- been able to take part in. It's fascinating when you see the the ways in which some of those early manuscripts match up throughout centuries of being recopied. And it it does show, uh, I, I don't think any other classical literature could ever stand up to the scrutiny that has been placed upon the scriptures, but yet the scriptures continue to be founded both by these papyri and also even uh, archaeology has uh, done such an amazing job of, you know, um, validating so many of the things recorded in scripture. Right. Right. No, it, you know, it's interesting because people, it's it's easy for the non-Christian world to sort of relegate Jesus to some mythological figure, you know, uh, right. like Hercules or Paul Bunyan, right? Or it, and he's not a myth. I mean, that's like saying that Julius Caesar was a myth. Julius Caesar's not a myth. Um, uh, we have historical records of him. We have his, mm-hmm. and, and so we have historical records uh, of of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of the day, there's still an article of faith, whether he was God. But we have a pretty good historical record saying that he said he was God and that others believed he was God. And it's not not just a fable that somebody came up with. Exactly. And, uh, well, we could could keep going on this. This is such a fascinating topic and uh, one that just continues to build faith when you see the ways in which... uh, these these proofs are are continuing to be unearthed or revealed, which is just wonderful. But right. I know that the Solidarity uh, Association was also involved in uh, what we're now discussing, and that is uh, this document from Archbishop Miller. It's 18 years after its publication, but still it's such a strong, solid uh, foundation for really evaluating and looking at Catholic schools today. How did how did this uh, program come about where Archbishop Miller actually presented this to a group? Uh, yeah, we well, well, the Solidarity Association, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the origins of it were to really help with Catholic education. And so um, a, a friend of mine had an idea that we could go to, to Catholic University and, and have a conference and he knew um, Archbishop Miller. He said, "I think he'd be he'd be interested in coming and make a making a presentation." At the time, he was the secretary for the Congregation for Catholic Education, which is one of the dicasteries at at the Vatican. Now, mm-hmm. for those who follow all the most recent stuff in the Vatican, it, the, the dicasteries are being changed around a little bit with labeling and stuff. But at the time, he was in charge of of Catholic education, and uh, he's just a wonderful man. I mean, you had it. You mentioned you had him on an earlier podcast. I. I I, he's delightful, incredibly well-educated, uh, and also a very good speaker. We wanted him to come speak, but I didn't know when he, I didn't know what he was going to say until he said it. And he laid it out with such, um, he laid out 
you know, the, 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 the teaching of the church on what Catholic education is all about, he put it forth in such an accessible manner, uh, in a very humble manner, and yet in one that, that, that is inspirational and also uh, informative and catechetical. He really tells mm -hmm. us what it's all about and sort of the, the genius of it was that, you know, if you pick up the book and read it, yeah, you can read it in about 30 minutes, you know, um, and and there's so many things I know when I want to, it's it's so nice when somebody gives you a book to read because they give it to you as a gift. And when it weighs 400 pounds, I mean, 400 pounds, it doesn't weigh 400, yeah. 400 pages, right? You think, well, I hope I get to that, mm -hmm. but I got so much else to read. And, and so, so we decided, you know, that speech is so good. Let's publish it and see whether anybody would be interested in it. So, so like you said, we're now 18 years later and we can continue to sell thousands of copies. And any of you at your schools, if you haven't used it, I mean, we, at the schools I'm affiliated with, we give copies to the teachers and to everybody working there. and, and at times to parents too, you could easily give it to parents. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to assume that everybody knows what Catholic education is all about. And um, my generation was among the first in the last couple of hundred years in this country. We didn't necessarily get the catechism that people thought we got. We didn't necessarily get mm -hmm. taught uh, uh, what our faith was really about, what a Catholic education is about. And so when there are when there are those in our communities who, who don't really understand what the real purpose of a Catholic education is. It is great that we have Christmas pageants and nativity scenes. That's wonderful. And, and that, that we sing the hymns, but it is much more, much more important, much more profound than that. And so it's just good to have something you can, you can hand out to folks uh, to say, listen, this is really what it's all about. Don't worry. This won't take you more than a half hour to read. Uh, but it'll give you a really good understanding. And so we didn't know it'd be that popular when, when Archbishop Miller gave the address, but, uh, but I'm just amazed at how many, how many copies it continues to sell. And, and the content of what's in that document still has, it's evergreen. You can uh, use absolutely. it uh, for such a uh, broad application of Catholic education. And I, I really think what you're talking about is so critical that it's not just about having a, cat, uh, a crucifix uh, on the wall and uh, to get together and pray the rosary once a month or uh, those types of things, as good as all of that is. I mean, oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I uh, was president of a, a brand new school and every classroom we had uh, crucifix, blessed mother and all of that. But it goes so much deeper into really the formation of the human person. And one of the things that we we've been able to kind of march through the various Marks, and I think that was the one of the genius uh, parts of this document, this presentation that he made at CUA, was the fact that he listed these five areas that you can actually measure. You can look at this right. and say, "This this does reveal the catholicity of a school." So the one for today is sustained by the witness of teaching, and and Archbishop Miller wrote. With them, and he's talking about teachers, he says, with them lies the primary responsibility for creating a unique Christian school climate as individuals 
and as a community. Indeed, it depends chiefly on them whether the Catholic school achieves its purpose. Now, this seems obvious, but I'm, I'm wondering if it isn't somewhat overlooked. And so, uh, what? give us kind of your thoughts about this particular mark. Sure. Um, we... Uh... It, it comes from this sense of, um, I think if we don't understand how in-depth a real Catholic education is, we can, um, we can underestimate what's needed to provide it. So I'll give you an example, and you, you may have heard this before too, and I don't mean to pick on anyone when I say this, but I've, I've been in several places where the director of religious education for the parish may get up at the end of mass, you know, before the final blessing and encourage people to teach CCD. And I've heard on at least several occasions, something along the lines of, please don't worry. You, you please volunteer. Don't worry. Okay. You don't have to know anything. We'll teach you. All right. Now they're trying to encourage people to teach CCD. But this idea that we, we'll have a training session and you'll know everything you need to know to teach CCD, it's just not right. It's not true. I've taught CCD. You, you can't just hand somebody a workbook. Um, but but because we're desperate to get, in this case, CCD, then we're going to move to Catholic schools, okay? We're mm -hmm. desperate. To, we need teachers. And if, and if we get up there at the end of Mass and say, all of you who majored in theology right, and really understand all the teachings of the church, please see me after Mass, we may not have many people, right? So we, we kind of we kind of lower the standard, if you will, of who the teacher, who might be qualified to be teacher. Now, the people who volunteer who don't know, aren't that well-formed in the faith, they're, they're good souls trying to help. Uh, and, and for CCD, which is an hour a week, but when you're when you're with the kids all day, um, we really need Catholic witnesses who understand what the real mission is. Uh, this and again, it's not easy. I'll, I'll tell you, I've been involved in as, as you mentioned in a number of Catholic schools. Running a Catholic school is not easy. Mm -hmm. We used to here's the benefit we used to have, and and Archbishop Miller he speaks about this actually toward the beginning of the of the booklet. We used to have people teaching who had been formed in the faith for 10 years in a seminary, right? Or a convent. I mean, they, right. we had nuns and brothers and priests teaching. And, and, and so it was sort of assumed, well, of course they know the faith. And of course they're living the faith because these people have made vows to God to give their entire life to serve him. As we started switching to lay people, which I think it's it's wonderful to have lay people in there as witnesses. But there was sort of the assumption, well, I'm sure the lay people we hire, nobody said this, but there was sort of an assumption, okay, yes, 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 it was great to have the, the priests and the nuns. Now we've got to pay the lay people, but that's okay. We'll get good, faithful Catholic people. But they weren't near as well-formed as the religious who used to be teaching. There's no, no way they... And, and so we got... We, we started just uh, saying, well, if this person's a good teacher and they've been teaching in a public school or another private school, whatever, if they're a good teacher, we'll hire them. And, 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 and they're, they, they go to mass 
every Sunday, or maybe and sometimes they didn't because we needed a, we needed a, a, a trigonometry teacher, right? And we said, well, we can't find a faithful Catholic trigonometry teacher, so we hire a trigonometry teacher, and and that gets us down the path of saying, well, if they don't practice the faith, how are going how are they going to witness the faith? So I, I and and Archbishop Miller he he speaks of this challenge, and he speaks of the fact that if in any way possible, you really need every teacher to be someone who understands the faith and is practicing the faith um, or they, or they can't fully do fulfill the mission of the school, which is to, to form children in the faith. Um, it becomes, it becomes I, I kind of a question. private school. Yeah. It, it's a private school. That's right. Yeah. And, and candidly, that's what some parents want. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, and this is, this may sound a little controversial. I'm not trying to stoke controversy, uh, but there are parents who say, okay, I, 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 we don't go to church every Sunday. We don't really practice, but we're Catholic, but we're, we're, we don't want too much restriction on the way we live our life and everything. So that we'd love the idea of a Catholic school. I like the uniforms. I like the sports. I like the, the, you know, the Christmas pageant and all of that. And that's just super, but um, we don't, you know, let's, that's enough. That's enough. You know, we, mm-hmm. we don't really need because we're, we're, we're and, and every faith has this. We have our people who are sort of culturally Catholic. And a Catholic school is really not about being a cultural Catholic with, with the accoutrement of, of, of our tradition and yet not with the, the very substance of, of our, are we growing in our hearts toward Christ? Uh, and if a if a teacher or an administrator is them is themselves not seeking to do that, it's very hard to to uh, to teach the kids to do that. Um, but but I want to I want to inject one thing here. What I'm talking about, it's not easy. This is this this business of education. Saint John Chrysostom said, you know, educating a child is maybe the most noble thing one can do. But it's not easy. And, you know, when we see it's very easy to point at public schools and say, oh, look, they're they're You know, they're not doing very well. Da, da, da. But it's not easy. This is a difficult endeavor. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually goes to uh, the aspect of hiring for mission, doesn't it? That absolutely that we've really got to look carefully at the people that we're inviting into the experience of being a part of the school uh, I know that uh, the Archbishop wrote the careful hiring of men and women who enthusiastically endorse a Catholic ethos is, I would maintain, the primary way to foster a school's Catholicity. And I guess this goes to the fact that really faith, even in the classroom, is more caught than taught. Yeah, I mean, we we all, and and I think I think he also references a little later in that in that chapter a quote by. Uh, Paul the Sixth, where he says, you know, right. in this century, people listen more to witnesses than to to teachers, right? Exactly, yeah. So obviously, they're teachers in the classroom, but the kids are watching. And you know, at times I've heard, well, this person is just a wonderful teacher, and let's say history, wonderful history teacher. You know, in all candor, uh, he or she probably knows more about the Catholic Church than most of us. They're not Catholic, but they probably know more than most of us because they're just a great history teacher. And and my thought is, okay, if they know that much about the Catholic Church, 
and have decided for themselves not to be Catholic. Well, certainly that is their right as an individual to choose how to live, you know, what religion to have. But if they know a lot about the Catholic faith and have chosen not to participate, mm-hmm. that itself is a witness to the children. Right. Okay. That is saying this smart person that we're putting here to teach you, this smart person has examined the Catholic faith and found it wanting and has decided for themselves they don't want that. And that's the witness that we're putting in front of of children in a Catholic school. And that's just just an inherent contradiction there. What what do you do if you're an administrator and you've been hired to uh, begin at a school, let's, let's say as principal, and this is your heart, exactly what we're talking about. Teachers as witnesses, the whole <clears throat> uh, the whole nine yards. And you don't have the luxury of starting the school with a blank slate. You've inherited staff. You've got teachers that have been there sometimes for a long time. And it's evident they're not hired for mission. Do you have any thoughts on what they could do to move the compass more in that direction? Yes. And and the the the, the hypothetical you just named uh or just described is not just a hypothetical. There are probably two thousand cases out there like that. Exactly. Let, let's start with we we start with an ideal, and then we have our human shortcomings that always fall short of the ideal. I think it's tempting sometimes when we have an ideal, when we find that we fall short of it, to say, well, what's the use, right? Because, I mean, the Bible tells us we're supposed to be, Jesus told us, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, I know I'm not perfect. So I could just say, well, there's no way I can do that, so I give up. But you say, no, 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 we're always supposed to aspire to that, okay? So sort of the same thing in a Catholic school. Every Catholic school is filled, all of the teachers and administrators and board directors and priests are all sinners. You know, it's one of the things Pope Francis said when he first came out on the balcony, or, or when they were first interviewing him. They said, who is Jorge Bergoglio? He said, I'm a sinner. So we're all sinners. And this is not about having... Uh, setting impossible hurdles for people that that they need to to meet okay but there is something somewhat binary about do you subscribe to the mission that we have as a school okay do you do can you say yes i'm all in for that i fall short but i'm all in for that mission and so it, it's it's like our Catholicity, okay? Do, do you subscribe and say, yes, I'm trying to be a practicing Catholic? Yes, I fall mm-hmm. short. I got to go to confession. But but I have said, that's what I'm aspiring to. And someone who's not aspiring to that, they don't call themselves Catholic anymore. They leave, whatever. Okay, so when that kind of school is, yeah, it, it, there's so much prudence involved. Obviously, a, a, a new headmaster can't come into a school and say, wow, you know, we're, 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 we're just decimating this thing. We're going to start all over. Okay, because that doesn't that doesn't really help people. I think the the very first example or the very first thing is the head of the school needs to be unequivocal in their own commitment 
to the mission. Sometimes the mission needs to be, the, you know, whether it's the written mission or the unwritten mission, needs to be refined and strengthened. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's gotten watered down a little bit, or it's not as it's not as much of a teaching statement about what we're all about as it could be. For years, when I think we used to have a little bit of a denial that some of our Catholic schools weren't necessarily doing all that great a job, we sort of said, well, if it's a Catholic school, it's a Catholic school. Everybody knows what a Catholic school is. Well, maybe back in the 40s they did, but they don't know now. And so it's part of our mission for our administration, board members, teachers, uh, parents, and most importantly, students to say, this is what we're about. And it almost, we don't want to drill it into people, but it almost can't be said too often, particularly when our everyday culture is so far removed from those ideals. Right. So in answer to your hypothetical, I think the first thing is that head of the school needs to have clear in their mind what that mission is. They need to be communicating it constantly, but back to the witness part. They need to be living it, you know, and you may say, well, of course they're living it. I don't know. Not, not, not every, not every head of our, of the Catholic schools in this country is, is living their faith on a daily basis. There, There are some Catholic schools that have heads who aren't Catholic, who aren't Catholics. And, um, and, you know, again, the people who are, who are making those decisions to put that personnel in, they say, well, we couldn't find a good Catholic candidate. This is that. I, I, I'm not saying this is easy, uh, but it just becomes very difficult to have uh, uh, to have your personnel in a situation where by their very lives, they're not living the mission. I think that's a key, isn't it? The whole idea of being a witness is uh more again uh, well I, i'm looking to uh marshall McLuhan, who is an old communications theorist and a passionate catholic by the way that's one of the things yes, many people did. don't know yeah. but um you know he said the medium is the massage and the teacher is that medium is the the means through which truth is is learned but that medium is what massages how you embrace not only the truth taught but the more like the life of that teacher. Yeah, exactly. And and um, there's just, it, it's interesting how I think sometimes with, with children, I was going to say particularly young children, but I think really teenagers also, maybe because their brains haven't been so cluttered and jaded with, you know, so many years here on earth, uh, they they sniff out, discrepancies pretty, pretty well, mm-hmm. pretty intuitively. Um, they, they start to understand what's really important to people. You know, you may have seen some of the polls for those who, who uh, uh, would love for their children to go to church when they grow up. Um, they, there's, I think it just came out last year. It's very important that mo- they see their mother going. Uh, but the real variable that flipped whether adult children will go to church was whether they saw their father going. Because if they see mom head to church and if they're going with mom to church and dad staying home, he doesn't have to say anything. 
They just realize he's opted out. And, and so the mission of the family to raise the kids in the faith, dad may have said, yes, I'm okay. We'll raise them Catholic. Da, da, da. But if dad stays home, uh, uh, your, your, your success ratio with the kids raising them in the faith plummets from like 80% to 20%. Right. So uh, kids sniff it out real quickly if you're in on the mission or not. It's, it's interesting. One of the things that I encountered the other day with one of the kids from our parish school is I was in a store and <laughs> ran into this family and the child was astounded that a priest did anything but stay at the church. You know, I was there in a store, you know, yep. but the interesting thing about it, and I can see it, it's when they see you in a real life context, that's also an opportunity for them to witness that you're living the right kind of life. You don't want to be caught in the wrong place. Right. You know, right. it's a part of being consistent, living out your, your faith as a regular part of your life is is found in so many ways with our children. Well, and you know, it can actually be one of the things I found about a Catholic school, when it's done well, it doesn't just help the children. Right. The parents become better because they now need to be a better example to their kids. The teachers become better people. Uh, I'm a board member. I become a better person because mm -hmm. I need to keep up that standard. And so, uh, yeah, there's a, there's an aspect to which that kind of witness, um, can lift us all. Right. Um, you know, one of the things I might encourage for those who are, who are engaged in Catholic education, I might say it is very difficult to hire these days, good talented teachers who are living the faith. But it's the most important thing we do. Um, you know, K through 12 education is an extension of parenthood, okay. right? For eight mm -hmm. hours a day, the parents say, you're in our place. Um, it's, it's just, it's the most important thing. And when you, when, when you hire somebody who's really with the mission, and dedicated. You know, I once said, you wouldn't need any administration. If you actually had a saint in every classroom, you're done. You're done. <laughs> right. You know, because the saint knows I've got to get And I'm not saying the saint would just teach them all to pray every day. Okay. The saint, if the saint taught algebra, they'd be making sure these kids were doing their absolute best to learn algebra or to learn Spanish or to learn history. Okay. So the, the saint won't what best for the child, but that it does include the faith formation. And we just found over the years, uh, uh, when we get a really faith-filled teacher who knows their stuff and is faith-filled, the kids love them, the parents gravitate, gravitate to them, and they become these, these gravitational powerhouses uh, that, that, that people come to and the effect that they have on their students. Now I'm able to watch at these schools we started you know, almost 30 years ago. I'm able to see you know, the, the, these graduates are now in their 30s and approaching 40 years old. Um, and it's remarkable to see the effect that a really strong Catholic education can have when mm. they have some of those witnesses. And think about it. In a way, we don't even have to. I mean, you and I are sort of making the case for this, Archbishop, based on what Archbishop Miller had. But I didn't have the good fortune to go to Catholic schools. I had to kind of learn a lot of it later. 
thanks be to God. But um, I can still think back in, you know, my first 12 years of school to about five teachers who were witnesses to me and impacted my life. And when you realize that's what we're doing with these kids, you just say, we, we've just got to aspire for the best. Um, I will say to those involved in education, I do find over the last 15 years, there has been a, I'm, I'm not saying it's a, it's a huge tidal wave, but there's a groundswell renaissance of faithful, young, joyful, Catholic graduates who want to go into teaching. Agreed. Yeah, I've seen that too. It's one of the most hopeful things I've seen in the church in the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. Now, for those administrators that we're talking to at this point, what are some key questions that they need to ask in the hiring process that might reveal some of these dynamics in an individual? Um. I don't, I don't, as opposed to say, ferreting it out, I think it's better just to sort of be direct. Mm -hmm. you know, do you, here's our mission. What, what do you, what do you think? Is there any part of this you have a problem with, you know, or, or here's this book, right? Why don't you, re, you know, let me know what you think of it. Is there, is any part of that that you have issue with? Do you, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? Right. Um, uh, now, obviously, you know what I found? It's funny when it comes to matters of faith. Um, even even I say even. I don't find many people lie. You know, they, they at least want their own integrity. So if if someone has is is not living the faith or cannot subscribe to the mission statement as long as you make it clear and you have them read it slowly they don't just blow through it okay i think you'll you find there's a lot of honesty because mm -hmm. people kind of know they're on that that's a that's a treacherous place to start not being honest um so so i find it's just better to 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 sort of have your school mission statement and and be really clear about what you're, what you're all about, and ask them: Are you are you comfortable with that? Because we really do expect our teachers. We don't expect them to be perfect moral examples, but we do expect that they're really they're really aspiring to live according to these ideals. Uh, and if you are, then then that's great. And if not, you you may you know, you may want to think about whether you'd be happy here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I even tell my employees, I tell people I'm hiring in my businesses, right? Let's talk about values. Let's talk about what's important to you because, you know, working at a place, it's not like getting married. You're not making a vow, but, but you can be spending a lot of time with folks and, and you'd like to know that your, that your values are, are sort of in sync or you just, you just digging yourself into a hole. Well, that's, that is really the case. And unfortunately, uh, if you hire the wrong person a year or two later, you may be hiring somebody else again because there is not that longevity. Yeah, it just doesn't, you know, and, and there's a little bit of, um, yeah, people can push this, 
push this issue and say, well, would you never hire a Catholic? I mean, a non-Catholic. And the answer is no, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, yeah, we have we have someone who drives the bus, right, at the school. And we have, and and there's certain things where candidly it's it's probably more, it, it's sort of more critical. I, I would not have a non-Catholic teaching religion. No. Right. Just uh um uh and and so it's not that everybody that the the guy that mows the 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 baseball field, okay, does that person need to be a practicing Catholic? No. Uh, but you know, the, if the kids are going to have contact with whoever the person is, okay, again, they are a witness. You at least want people who at the end of the day you want to say, is this a good witness to the children for uh for what we're trying to teach the kids? If if they're a good witness, then then okay, but let's not uh let's not kid ourselves. That's that's what's going on here. One of the things that I've asked um, all of the guests over these five different uh, episodes having to do with the marks, is there an, an additional identifying mark that you think should be added to Archbishop Miller's list? Hmm. Uh... I, 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 nothing. Well, I'll tell you this, nothing comes immediately to mind. Um, because I was, I was about to say having a, um, having a critical mass of, uh, of, uh, teachers and parents who really get the mission and are really dedicated to it. Um, because because people will be in all sorts of different places in their in their in their faith lives, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but having it, at least a, a strong core base that um, that that can be just so beneficial because schools are let's let's put Catholic schools apart for aside for a minute. Schools are contentious places. I mean, people put their children there. Okay. Public schools are contentious. Public school boards are contentious. Other private schools that aren't Catholic are contentious. People, people are really appropriately worked up about their children because their children are treasures that God gave them. So, so these are not drama-free zones. And, uh, uh, and so I think it's good to have that sort of core of support. I'll tell you what else I think is really beneficial. And we got to get better about this as an entire society, but particularly within the church. And, and, um, it's, we don't in the Catholic church view our Catholic schools as a responsibility of everyone in the pews. And that is a really unfortunate thing. It may be even a really bad thing. I know Catholics who go to Mass every Sunday and feel like, well, I don't have any kids in that school. I don't have any grandkids in that school. My kids went somewhere else. My kids are gone. I don't have any responsibility for that. And that, and I know, I know good, faithful, Mass-attending Catholics who believe that. And that is totally wrong. 
These these are the children of our of our spiritual communion that we have here. And if we don't teach the next generation the faith, the faith dies. You can see that in Europe, right? Uh, and and so uh, I think we're getting increasingly to the point that we've got to have that be the mark of the of the of the Catholic school that it is seen as the responsibility of 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 all practicing Catholics, whether you're 90 years old or or you know whatever your station may be, we're all responsible for those children in our parish. Well, I can't think of a, a, a better summary statement than that to really underline the the critical thing that has to be done in the future of Catholic education is that whole thing of ownership. And uh, I don't know what we can do to really foster that. I, I can see uh, in our local parish, even where I serve, we have some people that are bought into that, you know, they really see it. And there are others that just like you say, it's it's kind of like there's the separation between parish and campus, uh, even though we're we're in the same geographic area. And, yeah, and you know, the, the, uh, I think part of amending that, that right, we each do our own little part. It's why I'm I'm actually I'm glad you asked that question because it gave me a chance to give that little snippet of testimony about this issue. Mm-hmm. I think we have to say that. I mean, I've had to say that to people in, in, in my community, hang on. Okay. You may think you have no connection with that school, but if you have no connection with the school, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Cause that's our, that's our, these are our brothers and sisters, our younger brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. Mm-hmm. And we do have, and to say, I'm not my brother's keeper is, is not acceptable. And when you think about, yeah, it's great if we have bingo night and and fish fries and all those those things. But after the sacraments, I would argue that after the sacraments, the most important thing we do in a parish is the religious formation of our young people. After the after the ministration of the sacraments, that's the next most important thing we do. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, it was interesting this morning as I was uh, at the parish. And I was looking at our, we have a, a phenomenal library and we have some uh, some ladies that are really committed to to our library. And I began to think, who's going who's to take their place? Right, right. Who, who we, we talk about, okay, yeah, this is the, the school and the children. This is not just tomorrow's church, but it's today's church. But it is still tomorrow's church yes. in terms of, Built raising up leaders and not uh, we need priestly vocations, obviously. We need vocations to religious life, but we need passionate laymen and women who are really sold out. That's right. Um, so we, you know, we we each do our part. Look, you're doing it with the podcast, right? I think we we're still seeing the the uh uh the response to Vatican II. Part of which was to say, uh, and and I'm not a Vatican II expert, but part of what Vatican II, I think, was trying to to demonstrate was that the church is not, the church is all of us who are baptized. Right. Okay? And, we're, you know, as you know, when you're baptized, we're each called to be priest, prophet, and king to different degrees in, in, in our station in life. But this is not, too, too many times in the church over the last 25 years, we look at bishops and cardinals and or popes, but, you know, or, or pastors, 
and and point the finger uh, as if as if we as the lay people can't do anything. It's just not so. We can we can get engaged and work because we're the church too, um, and the 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 priests have their roles and we have our roles. And too many times we just sit back and complain about what Father or Bishop so and so is not doing, and that's just not acceptable. Well, Frank, I uh, I know that we're running out of time here, and I want to thank you. I know you have a super busy schedule. Thank you for carving in some time to to be with us on Follow to Lead. This has just really been rich. Well, Father, I've I've, I've truly enjoyed it. Thank you for the, your service to the church and the way you you actually uh, you cover a lot of ground, um, and your life's covered a lot of ground, but you cover a lot of ground. <laughs> so, so I'm grateful to you. Uh, well, thank you very much. You know, and the neat thing about this, we had Archbishop Miller on at the beginning, you know, in episode one, and uh, then they had the five marks, and it was going to be a six-part series. Uh, but I found out yesterday we're actually going to be able to do a seventh part. And I have uh, Bishop Daly, who is the current— Oh, wonderful. He's uh, great. Yeah, uh, who is the head of the uh, education Catholic Education Committee for the USCCB, to kind right. of round things up with us and kind of— take what Archbishop Miller said and then just kind of propel it into our, our future here in Catholic schools in America. So I'm really looking forward uh, to that being the next episode that we'll be able to have. That's great. That's great. Well, for our audience, uh, if you haven't already done so, we'd like you to follow our podcast and leave a comment to encourage us toward future programming. And to learn more about the Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative, please visit our website, at diaschools.org. We also want to thank our production assistant, Alex Shire, for assisting in the production of this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.